Good morning, Zach. Good, good morning, Bob. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. I uh, This is Zach with Farm Table West, and I want to welcome you to the Food Peddlers podcast. And today we have a really exciting episode. We have the man, the myth, the legend, Bob Richard with us here today. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about his new book and a little bit of the history of... Um, taking tourists up into Yellowstone. Um, we're going to talk about what people ate, how you, um, how your family uh, protected people from bears, all sorts of fun stuff. So without further ado, thank you very much for coming on the show, Bob. Thank and, you. Uh, it's nice to see you. It's always nice to see you too. Um, so you, uh, you just came out with this new book in December, December right? And this is the first, or this is the fifth book you've come out with? Actually, sixth. Sixth, okay. So we've got a list of all the other books. Well, there's one missing here. Oh, there's one missing, okay. And your books typically focus on um, tourist stuff in Cody and and, um, the history of your family bringing tourists into Yellowstone and... This last book, The Journey to Yellowstone, <clears throat> is about uh, my grandfather and my uncle doing tours to Yellowstone starting in 1906. A lot of historic photographs and uh, their whole Grand Loop tour of Yellowstone Park, starting in Cody at the Cody Burlington Inn across the river from Cody and taking 18 days to do a tour of Yellowstone by horses and by wagons. And they took between 50 and 150 guests at a time, and they did three tours every summer. And that was one, the first tour, the snow melted enough, usually they could get through on the 4th of July, and they do one on the 1st of September and the third one on the 1st of, uh, well, 1st of August and the 1st of September. Very cool. Very cool. And then your other books are, again, what, the other books are kind of like a picture tour of certain routes. I remember reading your Beartooth book. That's like a about the, the drive through the Beartooth, basically. Yes, it's a <clears throat> tour guide for the tourists that wants to know what the names of the mountains, the streams, that type thing. Uh, one is on the Beartooth uh, Loop. There's one on the town of Cody, the man, uh, the legend. And then most popular book is Cody to Yellowstone, going up the North Fork uh, with my photography, showing all the rock formation traveling to Yellowstone Park. Another one was published last year uh, when I was a horse ranger in Yellowstone in the 1950s, a lot of history. And my first book was Yellowstone Country, about 120 photographs of my dad's, Jack Richard. And of course, uh, his negatives are all archived at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. Very cool. Very cool. So it's basically um, 
like a, a book version of your actual tours that you take people on. Oh, yes. Yes, very, very cool. And that's great for people like me <clears throat> who um, don't read very much or don't read really uh, detailed books. There's lots of pictures. Well, you've been on my tour, so you know. I do. And uh, you'd make a good tour guide uh, in helping them to enjoy the country that's around them. Yeah, yeah, I love that stuff. But, uh, yeah, reading is not the, not my number one favorite thing to do, which is why we're doing this. This is cool, so people can listen and, and watch on, uh, you know, the interweb. So, um, so very cool. So I did actually read this book um, because, you know, there's really not much to read. It's lots of pictures in a couple minutes. Um, and I found some really interesting stuff that you said about your family, about... Um, modern technology and stuff like that and uh, I ask you is um, in the book you say that you learn to adapt and change through your family your um, your grandpa is Fred Fred was my grandfather okay uncle was Ned okay Ned Frost right and uh, growing up on a ranch and being a youngster Parents and grandparents assume you know everything they do. And so when they send you out to gather the cows, they assume that I've done it enough with them that I know where they are and what to do with them, and they give very little direction. And sometimes I didn't do what I should have done, and then we had a discussion, and next time I was doing a better job. Right. But, uh, I learned not only from them, but the grandmothers, my mother, uh, learned how to cook from them, uh, learned how to cook from a camp cook that took people uh, on the Frost and Richard tours, and I have many of his recipes. His name is Photograph Jones. He's in the photograph here, back in 1906. So bears have been fed in Yellowstone for years. Uh, and we have a companion here in the way of... Smelly companion. <laughs> Mocha, one of the dogs. But anyway, uh, the tour to Yellowstone and on the cover is the cook wagon, Photograph Jones, and he prepared in that wagon with a cook stove food for breakfast and dinner and he made lunches so everybody had lunch along the way and he cooked for 18 days and he had to take all the food with him yeah and keep it fresh so many interesting recipes definitely yeah i, I definitely want to get deeper into that topic for sure um but in, in the beginning, you say you learned and adapted um, to change through your family, and um, it opened doors into modern world of technology. And I was just curious, um, how has modern technology helped you preserve history and also provided a window into the future um, for modern generations, for me, people like me? Well, I look back... And my grandfather was the best example. Uh, after he retired, mm. and I came home on leave from the military, 
where I was a military pilot, and I rented a helicopter in Grable, picked him up, and I said, Granddad, let's fly all the area that you have spent a lifetime sharing with guests from all over the world. He climbed in the helicopter, and we spent two hours flying over northwestern Wyoming. He pointed out campsites, pointed out uh, interesting things that I hadn't seen from the ground, nor had he. And we got back to the ranch and landed, and he says, Bobby, we have to talk about today. And I said, why is that? He said, I watched the advent of the steam engine, Mm -hmm. the combustion engine, the airplane, Spudnik, uh, John Glenn with his first trip around the world. And he says, here you are flying. He says, my son, your namesake, Bob Richard, was a uh, pilot during World War II in the Pacific. And he says, now you have big airliners that take people across the ocean. And he said, all these things are change. And what's going to happen next? Well, what happened next, after he passed away, now we find that the house phone is obsolete. And we carry cell phones. We have computers that have all this knowledge we can pull up at our fingers. And what's going to happen next year? I don't know. But I'm thinking it will be as rapid as it has been during my grandfather's time and my time. Probably even more. And already getting into that. Mm -hmm. And thank goodness you're doing that. Yeah, uh, that's what we're doing right here, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Um, Yeah, there has been a lot of changes with technology, you know, that far back. But, I mean, the past 20 years um, with computers, it's just kind of, like, skyrocketed. And it's like every year there's something brand new that's becoming a big thing, like podcasts, like we're talking about right now. I mean, it's a big deal. Everybody's starting to to listen to podcasts digitally and stuff like that. So um, I admire you for for taking advantage of, of modern technology and not being afraid of it. I have youngsters like you making sure that I do. Yes. Well, I, I try. <laughs> cool. So, um, you also talk about the, the Frost Richard Ranch, which is, is that where you grew up? Uh, no, I grew up actually in three different places. Frost Richard Ranch, uh, the Rhodes Ranch. And partially in town. Oh, okay. Uh, my dad was a publisher of a newspaper, and my mother became the publisher when he went overseas in World War II. And so I was, at a very young age, spending most of my time either at the Frost Ranch or the uh, Rhodes Ranch or at my grandfather's retirement home mm. on the North Fork. Mm, okay. Which is a small ranch. But uh, I always either helped milk and feed the animals, drove the, the tractors or whatever at a young age because that saved hiring a hired man. Mm-hmm. And so I became very familiar with the equipment and the families and was accepted as one of the family on all three ranches. That's pretty cool. Well, it was for me. 
And then my mother wanted me to come to town, which I didn't like. Uh, but she wanted to see me too. So I was stretched, went to school at Wapata School, which is a country school with one teacher in eight grades. Uh, but I learned. And everything just seemed to come my way. Very cool. Very cool. But, um, yeah, the actual, the ranch, you, it sounds like in the book you're talking about how you guys grew your own alfalfa, grain, livestock. Um, I was wondering how uh, the irrigation worked back then. So this is... It hasn't changed. hasn't changed. Uh, most of okay. it is flood irrigation Yeah. Uh, from canals or ditches, and you draw from the streams coming in without water. You can't grow anything. Right. And uh, so I learned at a young age to put a shovel over my shoulder and go out and move water mm -hmm. and change what we call the sets. A set is distributing the amount of water you had in a ditch and spraying it out over the, the field so that it would be distributed and get moisture to all the grass or the alfalfa. Right. And uh, it had to be watered probably every two to three weeks, depending on the outside air temperature and the wind. But uh, that was just one of the few jobs. And then as soon as it matured, then we took the water off. And then we had to mow it and rake it, bale it, and put it in stacks for winter use. Right. Right, and the but the irrigation before when when was Buffalo Bill Dam as it is now built? That that it was totally... finished in nineteen ten. Oh, that, that wouldn't help us. That didn't help us, yeah, because yeah. we were above that and we we're on the North Fork, but we had our own canals and our own ditches. Right, and each stream coming out of the mountains, we made ditches and put laterals in, so that we could get the water out in land that we could uh, irrigate and raise crops in. Right, okay. So so when you're above the dam, basically you're just getting water straight from a stream. You're not getting like That's the correct. pressure of a dam, okay. that whole thing. Okay. I was just curious how that worked, even on the South Fork too, because it's the same thing. The South Fork, the first irrigation canal was the Cody Canal, and it provided water all the way to Cody. And... Uh, but we have five major canal systems uh, based upon the water coming out of the North and South Fork. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, and, and this is something, I, I'm from, you know, Chicago area. I never knew about all this stuff, you know, so i got to ask. Yeah. So back to, um, you, you're talking about the, the cooking wagon here um, earlier. In the book, you're saying that Ned and Fred carried everything they needed on these trips. So that includes food, obviously. I'm assuming, is that probably the biggest thing you had to carry? Like, oh, no, no. No? They had a camp crew with horses, teams, and wagons, as well as a crew that took the guests. Right. And so you had two different groups, and the camp crew set up the camp, and then when everyone left in the morning, then they broke the camp down, and then they knew where they were going to the next campsite. In doing so, 
at noon they would pass the guests who were having a picnic and they would go on in, set up the camp, set up the tents, set up cots, set up the uh, uh, cook tent, uh, the dining tent, and have everything ready. And the cook would have the fire going in the stove and he would be cooking dinner when the guests arrived. And they would travel between 15 and 20 miles a day. Right. Yeah. But what, what exactly was the food? I, that's what I was curious about. Because in the book, you're, you're talking about how um, when people were on the ranch, because they were on the ranch for the first day, is that correct? Like they as a were, staging area? They were picked up at the uh, Cody Burlington uh, Railroad. Train station. And uh, they could spend the night there. But they were picked up and taken to the ranch. That was their first day, and that was a good 22 miles. Okay. And there, their tents were set up, their cots were set up, and then the next morning, they started on their trip. Okay. So they, they did spend a day at that ranch. And, and in the book, you said that um, when they're, at least when they're on the ranch, pretty much all the food was grown there. Because back then, there wasn't an, any other way to get food, there was no. They, you know, they Cisco grew their. They had pigs. They had. They cured the hams. That was one of the staples. Uh, bacon. Uh, there was canned meat that was put up in jars. Yeah. And had to be carefully packed. Really, it was good. Really? What do you put in this canned meat to season it? Like yeah. salt and stuff? Or? Just salt and pepper. Mm. But it was just as good as any uh, canned meat that you would get today. Okay. In fact, I preferred it. Really? Wow. And uh, when we uh, killed deer or elk in the fall, we would can most of that, and it would be very tender. And uh, we canned trout. Tasted just like salmon. Uh, so we had a variety of foods, and we did have some canned foods that were commercially done, canned milk, uh, and some other items, but I wasn't there, so I can't really tell you. Uh, but the big thing was they took as much in the way of root vegetables as possible, kept them cool, and they survived through the whole trip. But think about the amount of vegetables yeah. to feed that many people. So it took a lot of planning. Uh, when they had 150 guests at a time, their biggest problem was having enough wagons, drivers, and horses to take all the supplies as well as the guests. And most generally, they had between 60 and 100 guests on a tour. But they did get up to 150. In 1913, Frost and Richard took more guests through the East Gate than all the visitors from the other four gates put together. Now that's amazing. That is amazing. They had a big business, but they catered to the guests. They catered to the uh, individuals to ensure they had the best possible time. And they also had an extra, uh, oh, probably 10 days if people wanted and booked it ahead of time, a trip down to the Tetons and back. 
Right, yeah, I saw that. And uh, that made it a 28-day trip. And uh, I was always amazed at how they could put that all together and uh, make it happen. And if you read my grandmother's diary, talk about snow in July mm -hmm. and talk about her experiences, uh, but that's where she met my granddad. And, and she's uh, the one from Chicago? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. She was a school teacher and a single woman in 198 that came out on one of their tours. And, and I didn't notice, like, the, the meeting story in here. I, I, I read the, the back part where it does talk about your, your grandmother, but I didn't hear the meeting story of how she met your grandpa. And I met, Well, he was in charge of the trip. Okay. And he took that trip. And he also had a broken shoulder, and he had his shoulder in a cast. And so my grandmother decided to take it upon herself to help him and make sure he didn't overdo. And I'm sure it irritated my granddad no end to have somebody right there all the time. But sure. she uh, and my grandmother got to know each other. And then on their way back out of the park, they stopped at Lake Hotel. And they sat on the uh, veranda at Lake Hotel. And uh, apparently they fell in love there. And by the time they got back to the ranch, they decided they were going to get married that fall or New Year's. So that's how that all happened. In Chicago. In Chicago. And Ned Frost, the partner, and my granddad went back, joined them. And spent Christmas and then New Year's, and they got married New Year's Day, 1909. And then they came back out to Cody. And uh, it's a rude awakening for a Eastern person to come out here in the middle of the winter and learn all there is to learn about living in the West and surviving in the West. Especially at that time. And then they... Uh, that fall of 1909, grandmother was pregnant, and her sister, who was a nurse, came out from Chicago, Mary, and helped deliver my dad at the ranch. And then Ned fell in love with Mary. So the partners then became brother-in-laws. Mm. And what did they do? But the following year, 1910, they took the two women, and by then Aunt Mary had her first child, and they moved to Clark, where they lived in a tent all winter long on Bennett Creek. And if you look at the uh, Beartooth book, you'll see a photograph of a blanket wrapped around the cow and the tent they lived in with these little bitty kids. And at the end of the winter, Aunt Mary and my grandmother put their foot down and said, we are not spending another winter in Clark. Yeah. The windier places we have. But anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, and more. Yeah, that makes, yeah, but a winter in Clark in a tent probably makes Chicago look like a paradise. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Chicago looks pretty cold. Chicago's awful, yeah, but I mean, uh, that's, Clark is windier than Chicago, for sure. That's crazy. And you had to put a blanket on the cow to keep the cow alive. That's funny. Wow. So, 
Um, when these trip, when your uh, granddad started these trips, the park is as a national park was brand new, right? It was like well, it had been formed in 1872. Oh, so it had been run by the soldiers and was run by the soldiers uh, up through 1918. So as they did their trips, they got their permits from the National Park Service, but Park Service had not been formed yet. It was Yellowstone National Park, but it was under the auspice of the cavalry, and the soldiers maintained control of licensing people coming into Yellowstone. Okay, but like Theodore Roosevelt made it a national park. No, 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 no. Ulysses S. Grant signed the law in 1872, making this our first national park. Really? Okay, I thought Teddy Roosevelt did that. No, no, he just came and visited in 1903. He just really liked it? Yes. Okay, Okay. so I'm I'm wrong on that then. I thought this was brand new. Um, So, tours... When did tours in general start with the park? I think they started before it was a national park. Okay. Uh, Washburn came in here in 1870 with a group of people touring Yellowstone. And that's where they got the idea. Uh, It was a Washburn-Langford party. And you should read about this. Mm. I know that's tough. But uh, they came to the decision with their party. Part of them wanted to commercialize it, and part of them said, let's save this for future generations. And so they went back to their legislators in Montana, who went back east to D.C., and they set up money and hired a man by the name of Ferdinand Hayden, Mm. and hired him to do a study of Yellowstone. He came by railroad to Salt Lake, hired horses, and packers and people, a photographer. Uh, and this is as in Hayden Valley, is that right? Yes. And uh, he hired an artist. So he had Jackson, the photographer, and and I'm trying to think of the artist's name. And they went all the way through Yellowstone, traveled all over it, and photographed and painted and sketched. And then he sent all those from uh, the junction of the Madison and uh, inside the park down to Salt Lake, and then they were all sent back to uh, Washington, D.C., where Congress looked at it and looked at the pictures, looked at the paintings, and uh, Moran was the artist. And then they enacted the legislation. Uh, That was done in 1871 in the summer. And then that winter, they enacted the legislation to make it our national park. Wow, okay. And at that time, it was a square, all in Wyoming. And then in 1928, they uh, changed the boundaries to give Montana uh, about 3% on the north. And they gave 1% to Idaho, uh, in Idaho, and then they changed the boundary on the east side of Yellowstone to follow the drainages. And that made some other changes. But when you first look at an original map, Yellowstone was basically a rectangle. Yeah. And then later on it changed. Hmm. 
And, and is that just politics? Was that what? I'm sure it was. Yes. Just so like Montana, Montana. can say they're part of Yellowstone. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Is what it is. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um. So the first tours that were happening in the park. Where were the guests coming from? Obviously, some were coming from Chicago and the Midwest. Um, and and your, your granddad went around and promoted this at uh, tourist conventions or some kind of conventions all around the country. They did that. Uh, yeah. Bill Cody promoted Cody mm -hmm. in Yellowstone. And he was a big promoter of getting people to come to Cody, stay at the Irma, and visit Yellowstone. And... Uh, so all this had a part in it. Right. And uh, every winter, Fred, Richard, and Ned Frost would go back east and go to uh, hotels and other places, and their former guests would help set up gatherings where they would talk about what it was like to do a trip in Yellowstone. And it was a high-end people out here that had money, then the Burlington Railroad took it upon themselves to continue to promote and had uh, features on travel and what have you. And they recruited lots and lots of people. And and people, like, what parts of the country are we talking about besides Chicago? Is, is there uh, West Coast people, San Francisco, Seattle? Mostly we're East Coast, Midwest. Uh, I've looked at the guest list of my grandfathers, and they came from Iowa, uh, going east, and uh, I met some of those guests that came out in the early days, and they were in their 80s, really old, but uh, that's all I could talk about is the wonderful times they had uh, by wagon and horseback through Yellowstone Park. Yeah, man, it had to be amazing, and, and the cool thing about back then is probably you're not running into a lot of other people. At that time, I'm guessing. I'm assuming uh, there wasn't millions of people no, coming to no, the park at that time. No, no, there were very few. And, of course, they had the bear stories and how yeah. the wranglers would uh, run the bears off and the cook would bang uh, pans together and scare the bears. But there was not an overabundance of bears like we have today. And, and that, was, that was one of my questions is, in the book, there's a story about uh, Margaret, your grandma. Um, there was a bear that came to camp one night, and the, everybody had to go in their tents, and then the, the guides had to go scare him away. But you couldn't kill the bear, or you couldn't shoot the bear or something. So there's all sorts of politics there, I'm sure. But like, how do you deal with that with 150 people? I, I, I can't even imagine that. Well, it's a big responsibility. Yeah. But you learn how to deal with any animal, and to keep the guests from being hurt. That's your job. Yeah. It was my job as a tour guide for up to 40 years in Yellowstone, trying to ensure the best of the park for them to enjoy and yet keep them from being injured or hurt. Yeah, because, I mean, even hiking nowadays, it's, it's like you still have that in the back of your mind. You always have to be worried about bears and thinking about that, so it's hard to... It have a vacation in a place like this if you have that to worry about. So I don't even know how you do that with 150 people, man. Like, uh, we have a hard enough time doing it with, like, three or four. <laughs> well, the more of the people, the less problems you have. Oh, because it's 
The bears don't like people. Oh, right. I didn't think about but that. But there are moose, and there's elk, and there's bison. And people have what's called a Disney syndrome today. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, I can go out and pet that tame animal. And that's very frightening. Mm-hmm. Because then they get injured and they don't understand why. Yeah, that would be a bad deal. Mm. So you never had a, there was never an incident where somebody got attacked? Oh, yes, there's... Oh, there is. Uh, an article about Ned Frost and the cook being badly chewed up wow. at Lake. And uh, I'm not sure that it's in this book, but it's in one of my books. And uh, the rangers finally came out, or the soldiers, and got rid of the the bear. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, it's, it's always a, a problem, and you have to deal with it, but... Uh, the bear was dragging the cook out from the cook tent in his bedroll, and my uncle took a block of wood and hit the bear, and the bear dropped the cook and grabbed him. Wow. Started chewing on him, and then all the people came out. The bear dropped him, and they had a Dr. Ely from Des Moines, Iowa, mm-hmm. retired, but he had his black bag, and he opened up his bag and cleaned out the wounds and put 18 stitches into Ned Frost, and almost that many into the cook, and they continued on their trip. Wow, and he was a guest, the doctor yes. just yeah. said. That's lucky, man. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting, yeah. I could, that's, the, that's the thing that I would not know how to deal with at all if I was in charge of running the, the well, trip. I would, be, I would never be able to sleep well. But it comes from experience. I suppose. As you hike and you're learning to hike in this country, you become more aware. Your first trips, you made many mistakes. Each trip since then, you make less mistakes. Amen to that, man. And that's just part of learning, and that's what they did. They learned as they did the tours. Yeah, I'm sure they learned a lot. Um, So for the guests that they are coming from all over the country... Did a lot of them settle here? Did a certain per- uh, percentage settle here? Kind of like today, like, I'm kind of an example of this. Like, we were tourists 15 years ago, and now my family lives here. And it seems like that's pretty common um, for nowadays. Was that how it worked back then? I think we got a few. When I did tours for 40 years, I would see one or two guests come back every year. Mm-hmm. And when they retired, they settled here in Cody. They liked it. Yeah. And the winners, we tell everybody the winners are terrible here. But if they look at it and study it, they're much better here than Chicago yeah. or the Midwest. Oh, way better. And it's drier. But uh, I never tell people that I didn't shovel my walks all winter. And that it usually melded with our uh, Chinook winds. Mm. I always talk about the six feet of snow and how difficult it was. And, of course... Up in the mountains, we have that, but not down here. No, I mean, it's a joke, yeah. There's no snow here. Well, I don't think there's a lot. Yeah. I always get a kick out of people complaining about the winter here, because, like, I used to live 10 minutes, a 10-minute walk from the lakefront in Chicago, and it's, like, negative 10 for two months straight, you know, and it's awful. It's just, you can get a heart attack from shoveling snow. People die. Well, I keep telling My son, I shouldn't be shoveling snow, but I actually I don't shovel snow, but it melts, and uh, we're very, very lucky to live here. 
Amen. I, it's amazing. It's a wonderful place to live. Um, so, to finish up, I have a sort of detailed question here. Um, you, at the beginning of the book, you talk about your family understanding, you know, how to live off the land and resource management and... Um, Basically, it sounds kind of like living sustainably, like and you had to back then because there just wasn't access to stuff that's from all around the country like there is now. Um, what lessons from in that department did they impart on you in terms of being resourceful and, and living off the land? Um, I, I think the biggest thing growing up on the ranch is there were many factors that contributed. We had horses for transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had cattle that we sold, but we also had for food. We had sheep for food. Right. Uh, also, we would take their fleeces and spin it and make sweaters and what have you. Uh, we had pigs, and we cured our own uh, pork. We had chickens. We had turkeys. And all these things... Uh, were raised, and then they were butchered to help feed us, and they were canned. Uh, we, I can remember canning, in my time, a uh, hundred chickens. Now that's killing them, preparing them, cleaning them, and cooking them, and then canning them and sealing them so they would keep for up to five years. And then we had the vegetable garden, mm -hmm. and we had to have that near a stream, and we had to uh, enrich the soil, and we had to think about what vegetables that we could raise that we could keep all winter. Root vegetables, carrots, beets, and other root vegetables, we raised lots of, and then we pulled them out in the late fall, and buried them in sand in a root cellar. And then we had fresh root vegetables all winter long. Uh, we raised lots of lettuce, uh, onions, they uh, worked on everything. And, uh, but everything we raised, we also looked at recovering seeds. Wow. So we had seeds for the next year. There wasn't a mail order place to get seeds. And uh, so that was a part of it. But we also hunted. We had a, a business guiding people on hunting trips. They didn't want the meat. Brought it home, hung it up, aged it, butchered it, canned it, and that also provided food. So, but through experience, you learned what you wanted, what tasted the best, and uh, advantage of every scrap of food. And that, with the milk cows as an example, mm. what we didn't drink or have for cream, we fed back to the hogs. Right. Or to a calf so that like we were fattening. So you had to manage all the different facets as well as growing hay to feed the cattle and the sheep in the wintertime. That's so interesting because, like, I don't really know of any place nowadays where that system really exists. I mean, I'm sure there are some in, around the country, but even like, you know, farming around here, selling the, the products that we sell on our website, 
it's it's not like the farms aren't like that you know there's all sorts of outside inputs that come in you know scott doesn't even save seeds you know like a lot of farms don't even save seeds anymore and that's well i keep talking to my son scott about what seeds are you carrying over and saving in case things go south and you don't have seeds yeah. how are you going to raise a crop next yeah. year and uh, you look at perennials you look at all kinds of things and uh, it takes a great deal of planning. It really does. And, you know, our future could be like Venezuela where things really inflate and we're going to have to depend on more home gardens, more local produce and food. And even though it will be expensive, then you start trading and see what you have, what I have, mm-hmm. so that we can survive yeah and a place like this it's not slated part of the country um but uh very cool well my last question is what piece of advice would you like to leave future generations you know youngins like me uh to um to kind of carry that torch of, of forcefully and um you know not taking too much from the environment because I know you're very passionate about that with um, fishing and all sorts of stuff, more than just food. Um, so what piece of advice would you like to leave? I think the biggest piece of advice, and that goes for everything, is do it in moderation mm-hmm. and establish goals for survival, but don't depend on just those goals. Uh, stockpile seeds, stockpile things that if you have to go to it, you can, but learn how to grow things, learn how to enrich the soil. Uh, it doesn't hurt for you to learn how to raise a calf, uh, get a, a milk cow calf, get it bred, and uh, raise another calf and milk a cow. It ties you down, but when you have a sister that might help, uh, being able to have your own milk, cream, but things and butter, because if things were to shut off and you couldn't buy those things, then you'd say, oh, I wish I'd done that. And when you have a few acres, you establish what you can do, what is in the realm, but don't do what many people come here and do, and that is, they have the image of the TV ranch, mm-hmm. and they buy two or three horses that eat everything down to where there's nothing but dead earth, and it's destroyed the land for years to come, and there's nothing there. And yet they un- don't understand why that happened. You have to manage all facets of not only the land, but your way of life to survive here. Absolutely. And that goes for fishing and hunting, too, and, and, and logging. And um, One of the things I've been really impressed with here, just living here for a couple years, is that uh, the, um, what do you call it, game and fish department is really good at managing that, you know, and, and only allowing people to take so much and whatnot. I've been very impressed with that. Because that's, that's a tough task, man, telling people no. Like, no, you can't fish too much or hunt too much. We have managers of mm-hmm. the fisheries, managers of the game, and they're constantly studying it, constantly trying and striving to 
find a balance between the landowners and uh, the game that's on it right. and making sure that there's that balance. So it's and there for generations to come. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The hunting's deal. better today than it's ever been. There's more wildlife today. Uh, that's cool the too. fishing is as good as it was when I was a kid. Uh, so they're doing something right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know that because I, I, from my perspective, it sounds like it's going down. You know, the, the per, no. per, yeah, that's good. That's inspiring. Yeah. Now, if you want trophies, right now the Game and Fish is trying to get input about where or how to better raise animals with bigger antlers. But you can't eat the antlers. That's for the trophy hunter that comes here. Right. The key is to raise and have a balance of the game on deeded and uh, BLM or forest land so it doesn't overgraze any of that. Sure, sure. Now, like I said, I'm very impressed with how they've managed that. And um, it looks, now that you're saying that we've got plenty of fish and, and game to hunt, it sounds pretty good for the next, you know, million years, whatever. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you so much for, for being on the and uh, talking about your book. So before we leave, uh, where can people get your book? I think Albertsons, right? Albertsons carries this. Uh, the Legends Bookstore carries it. Uh, Buffalo Bill Center of the West carries my books. Uh, several of the other uh, local service stations, what have you, carry it. And it's distributed. Uh, and if you can't find it, call me and I'll help you find it. Cool. Do you want to say your phone number to, so people can call or no? <laughs> <laughs> you can find me in the phone book. Okay, all right, cool. Uh, it's in Yellowstone National Park, though, too, right? What's that? This book is in the park, though, right? Uh, I have not put it in the park yet. I'll uh, be doing that this spring. Okay. But your other books are, is that correct? No, no. no? okay. No, I've just really just done it locally. Up. Okay. Uh, locally, as far east as Sheridan and in the southern part of the state, I have a book distributor called Shoshone Distributing. And um, this is a very good book. I have read it. Um, so if you're interested in some light reading, you can get through it in like a good half an hour. It's mostly I, pictures. I will tell you that all my books are mostly photographs because I too don't like to read in depth. But I love photographs that help me learn more about where I live and the way I live. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much, sir. I really thank appreciate you. it. And Good. hopefully we'll do this again sometime. I look forward to it. Good deal.